Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's uh, relevant to us and that it's still speaking to our hearts. We pray that you would transform us through it, that you would open up, us, open up us, our eyes right now to really uh, absorb all that you want to say to us tonight. So have your way with us, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So the book of Daniel uh, concludes what's known as the major prophets in the Old Testament. At this point, because Larry covered Hosea last week, uh, we've covered the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the law. Uh, we've covered the histories, which is Joshua, really through Nehemiah and Esther. We've covered the poetries, which is Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And we've covered the major prophets as of tonight, and we've started the minor prophets. So Daniel is, uh, is just an incredible book. Uh, I think he's probably word for word maybe the densest book in the Bible. There's just so much there for us to glean. There's so much we can learn. And, um, and so, yeah, we're just going to dive in. Daniel's basically divided into two sections. It's not really divided into sections. It has two main thoughts. Uh, one is history and one is prophecy. And they're staggered back and forth. And so it's not like... It's a little bit chapters 1 to 6 are more history-oriented and chapters 7 through 12 are more prophecy, but there's a little bit of both throughout. And so we'll just kind of take it as it comes. Daniel's probably one of the most attacked books in Scripture because it, the prophecies it delivers are so clear that if you can accept Daniel as being written when it was written, it adds a lot of validity to the Bible's claim that it was written by God. And so there's a lot of attempts to say, no, Daniel was written, uh, you know, a couple hundred years after a lot of these events took place, and he was written just, you know, shortly before the time of Christ, instead of about 500 years before the time of Christ, and we really can't trust it. And most of those arguments are uh, really faulty. Most of them are based on uh, arguments from, like, just a couple hundred years into the time of the church, so like 300 AD, uh, when some of these arguments started surfacing. And based on things that have now been discovered archaeologically, most of those arguments don't even remotely hold water. And so there's really no reason to, uh, to seriously question that Daniel is what it says it is, which is a book written by one of the captives from Jerusalem uh, during the time of Babylon and then into the time of the Medes and the Persians. So we're just going to sort of uh, read, probably read most of chapter, uh, we'll read pieces of chapter 1. Um, but chapter 1 really helps us set the stage. Go figure. That's why it's at the beginning. So it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So historical context. Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem and the Lord hands Jerusalem over to him because of the wickedness of the nation at that point. And so uh, then the king ordered, verse 3, Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So this is important for us to understand here, book of Daniel, context. Daniel is one of these guys. He gets carried away because he's selected by the king to be trained up to be a counselor for the king. So the king will have a little bit of a, you know, a, he's got, he's 
basically conquer the world. He wants a little bit of some cultural wisdom from everybody, but he's going to make sure they all go through the Babylonian school system. And so Daniel, based on where he's taken from, we can, or based on the description here, we know that he was either from the royal family or from the nobles. He was good-looking. He showed intelligence in every branch of wisdom. He was endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and he had abilities for serving in the king's court, and he was able to learn the literature and the language of the, of the Chaldeans, which is another word for the Babylonians. So Daniel's a smart, good-looking guy. He's also a young guy. Daniel, if, if we'll track it through the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel covers about 70 years, and Daniel's alive for all of them. So, um, Daniel at this point is old enough to be considered intelligent and good-looking and to be marked for, you know, for his abilities, but he's also young enough that he can live for 70 years and still be functional. And so, you know, a good ballpark is he's probably about 15 years old right now. So he's carried away from home as a 15-year-old, uh, taken from the language he knows, taken from the family he knows, taken from the city he knows, taken from the religion he knows, uh, and dropped in this new culture. And what's interesting, and, and the reason that it's important for us to pause and recognize this, is Daniel's new culture did not try to torture him into becoming a Babylonian. They didn't try to make him a Babylonian. They tried to brainwash him into becoming a Babylonian. They immersed him in an educational system and in a pop culture system and in everything that they could do to make sure that he understood how the Babylonian system works and why it's so awesome to be Babylonian and why you should just join right in. And Daniel, and as we'll go on, Daniel and his three friends don't fall prey to that. But it's an important thing for us to realize because it's what our culture is doing. Currently, in American culture, you're not tortured for being a Christian. Right? There are, you know, more and more, there's a little bit of maybe some social stigma, uh, but that does not count as torture. There are a lot of North Koreans who would be happy to trade places with your social stigma any day of the week. And uh, our culture isn't trying to physically force us into denying Christianity. But what are they trying to do? They're trying to culturally brainwash us. They're trying to get us so used to these ideas and these, you know, these thought patterns and we're just going to repeat them over and over and over again. And, and we're going to just see all these things until it's just normal, right? Until I've seen this so many times. I don't, you know, I mean, there's probably a lot of good people on both sides of the argument there's, and, you know, there's probably some nuances to this and that. And that's all, uh, you know, baloney. Um, Daniel is... He is not part of the Babylonian culture. He's not part of the Babylonian system. Daniel finds himself in a culture that's not his own, and he holds fast to his true faith. He holds fast to the true culture where he's called. And every one of us is in a culture that is not our home. We are not Americans, first and foremost. We are the children of God. We are not citizens of the United States, first and foremost. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But everything else, we have to keep that identity. Daniel's able to sustain for 70 years his identity, that he is a follower of God, despite all the pressure against him. And we can live that same sort of fullness. We can live with that same sort of fruitfulness and that faithfulness. But it's important for us to look at, at Daniel's life and recognize this. And I mean, think about it. 70 years is a long time. We just saw, you know, the, the Queen of England just celebrated being queen for 70 years. I looked it up. Over 7 billion people in the world right now have been born since the Queen of England uh, was crowned. 
So only one out of every eight people was even alive before she was queen. Think about how, I mean, just think about like, you know, we have black and white TV shows that make reference to the Queen of England. Oh, 70 years is a long, long time. Especially when you're only 25 years old. It's a really long time, right? I mean, that's like, everybody dies at 60 and you're old at 40. Uh, so Daniel's going to be faithful for a really long time and we can learn from his example. So he's brought into this culture that's trying to brainwash him. And when the first thing is they offer him all this food, they say, okay, you're going to eat the way the Babylonians eat. Well, that is not the way that the Lord commanded the Jewish people to eat. And Daniel goes to the chief guy and says, hey, basically, I don't really want to, I don't, I can, I don't eat this food. And the guy says, if you don't eat this food and you look unhealthy, I'm going to get killed. Daniel says, try it for 10 days and see what happens. So Daniel and his friends go on a vegetarian diet and they only drink water for 10 days. And at the end of, the, at the end of it, they look healthier than all the other guys. And it's, it's it's a great picture for us of Daniel's resolve. Verse 8 of chapter 1 says, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. And so this food was defiled in part because it was unkosher for the Jewish people, but also it had been offered to pagan idols. All right? And so understand, this isn't, this isn't a mandate for us for how we eat. Uh, in the New Testament, we're given freedom to eat what we want. Um, and there's a lot more, you know, if, I mean, for crying out loud, we had pork tonight. Um, but Daniel here is purposing in his heart, I think is how the King James puts it, that he would not defile himself. And if we're going to live in a culture that's trying to corrupt us, you don't resist that by just floating downstream. If you're going to resolve to not defile yourself, you're going to have to resolve. You're going to have to purpose in your heart, this culture will not impact me. Nobody is passively faithful for 70 years. Nobody. It doesn't happen. It's impossible. You're only going to be faithful if you resolve that there are things more important than your citizenship here, that there are things more important than your American culture or even your American Christian culture, right? There are things that are more important and we are striving and focusing on those things. Tangentially, some people turn this vegetarian and water thing into this like super spiritual Christian health plan. I think there's probably a lot of good reasons to dr eat vegetables and drink water. And I think everybody has a responsibility to take care of their body. It's a gift from the Lord. But at the end of 10 days of eating vegetables and drinking water, it says they were fatter than all the others. So if you're doing it for the spiritual sake, that's great. If you're doing it for the diet sake in the scripture, they're actually heavier in 10 days. So just throw that out. But Daniel's purposing in his heart. And we're going to watch through the book of Daniel. Daniel and his three friends, they purpose in their heart. So we're going to jump through a lot of it. But chapter 2, the king of Babylon has this dream. And he calls in all of his astrologers and guys. And he says, all right, I need you to interpret a dream. And they say, great, tell us what the dream is. And the king evidently was getting a little suspicious that some of their dream interpretations were a little bit, you know, cliche or by the book. And so he says, no, no, no. You're a fortune teller. You're an astrologer. You tell me the dream, and then you tell me what it meant. And then I'll know that you're telling me the truth. And they say, only God could do that, which is correct, right? But it implies that they had been, you know, lying and sort of telling the king what he wanted to hear. And so the king, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, is never really a guy who was patient. He's, you know, when you're king of the world, you just get used to getting what you want now. And so he's not used to getting a no answer so he says, okay, we're just going to kill 
all the wise men and we'll just start over with a fresh batch. And Daniel says, hold on, can, could I have, you know, kind of a little bit of time to, to pray about this? And so chapter 2, Daniel and his three friends go back and basically they get a little bit of a stay on their execution and they go back and ask the Lord to reveal to them what the dream was. And, and so it's a great little, just, you know, it's this little blurb in chapter 2. Daniel, he, he prays in uh, chapter 17 and 18. Then Daniel, sorry, chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Then Daniel went to his house and his, informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, those are his three friends, about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel and his three friends get together and they say, we're going to pray because if we don't, we're going to die. They pray. God reveals it, the dream, to Daniel in a vision. And Daniel then praises the Lord. Chapter 2, verse well, 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. It's he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings and gives wisdom to wise men. And he does all this. So Daniel, he goes on to praise the Lord, but it's an important progression. Daniel prays and he praises. Prayer is not just God, I want to feel better. God, I want to have more money. God, I want to have more clarity. God, I want to have more of this. God, I want to have more of this. Prayer is a two-way street. If you want to, you know, by all means, let your request be made known to the Lord. It's in the scriptures. If you have a request, there's something that you would like the Lord to help you with in your life, ask him. But along the way, praise the Lord. Praise Him for what He's done. You can praise Him for the things that you know He's going to do based on His Word. Read His Word as part of praying. Right? The Word of God is speaking to you. If you're lacking clarity in an issue and you're asking the Lord for wisdom, pray for wisdom and then read the Word of God. And you will probably find the wisdom that you need right where you're reading. So Daniel prays to the Lord. He then praises the Lord. And he then goes on and he goes to the king and he makes sure to give credit to God. Daniel's in a position where with one move, if he gets this dream right, he's going to be the smartest man in the world. Because, think about this. Daniel's basically in the class of smartest people in the world, and every other person in this class said, we can't do it, and Daniel says, I can. So Daniel, if he pulls this off, is going to be the smartest, brightest, and best person in the world, and he makes sure to tell the king However, he says in 20, verse 27, Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. So Daniel makes sure to say, I'm going to tell you this. It's not because I'm brilliant. It's because God wants to reveal something to you. And bear in mind, Daniel was brilliant, right? Most of us, actually all of, I think all of us in this room, probably can't actually claim that title, right? Like, what are you? I'm brilliant. Uh, most of us can't do that. Daniel legitimately could have. And he makes a point to say, this is not because of me. This is because there's a God who wants to communicate to you. Daniel is living a missionary life. He's living on mission, and so he then proceeds to tell the king his dream. He says, okay, here's your dream. It's basically a symbol of the kingdoms that are going to come after you. So you saw a statue. The head was gold. The chest was silver. Uh, 
I'm used to seeing it in my head, and I got to read it, and I lose my spot. The head was gold, the chest was silver, the belly and the thighs were bronze, the legs were iron, and the feet were partly iron and partly clay. And this is the Lord telling you, Nebuchadnezzar, that these are a succession of kingdoms that are going to come after you. You're the gold head, there's going to be another kingdom after you, it's going to be the silver chest, and they're going to go on down the list. He says, you know, each one of these metals is less valuable than the one before, it's also stronger. So the kingdom that comes after you is not going to be as rich as the Babylonian kingdom. It will be stronger. The kingdom that comes after that will not be as rich as the Babylonian kingdom, but it will be stronger. And he goes on and on from there. And then he says, you saw a stone that was basically cut out without hands, and it smashed the statue. The stone grew and and filled the whole world. And he says, basically, here's here's what's coming, right? Your kingdom, there's going to be four kingdoms, and then there's going to be a stone that fills the whole earth. And then, and so, keep, keeping all that in mind, we jump to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. So God tells Nebuchadnezzar, hey, here's a vision of a statue, and the statue is symbolic of the kingdoms that are going to come after you. Nebuchadnezzar says, thank you, I'm going to now make a statue of solid gold making the point of, God, I think I'm actually going to outlast you. I'm going to outlast your plan. I'm not going to be the head of gold. I'm going to be the head, the chest, the thighs, the legs, and the feet of gold. I'm going to establish a kingdom that's going to last forever. And so we jump here. Chapters 3, 4, and 5 are, I think, best understood together. They're kings and humility is really sort of how these three chapters come together. So Nebuchadnezzar gets chapters 3 and 4. And basically, chapter 3 is the story of um, the fiery furnace. If you've grown up in the church, this is probably one of the earliest narratives from the Bible that you can remember, right? So there's Daniel's three friends. Uh, The story gives us their Babylonian names, which are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king says, all right, everybody bow down to the statue. We're going to have a great ceremony where basically everybody worships the fact that I'm going to be king forever. And these three guys don't bow down. And the king says, um, I think you, maybe you missed what I said. What I said was, when you hear the music, you bow down. And if you don't bow down, I'll throw you in the fire. But you know what? Maybe you didn't hear. Maybe your knees are stiff. So we'll just give you one more shot. We'll just rewind the tape and start over. And they say, actually, king, uh, you don't have to start over because it doesn't matter how many times you give us this opportunity, we're not bowing to your statue. We bow to God and nobody else. And Nebuchadnezzar makes sure he reminds him, he says, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? And they say, uh, in chapter 3, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. We don't need to have a discussion here. If it be so... If you want to throw us in the fire, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship your golden image that you've set up. They say, king, you can do whatever you want. Our God is fully capable of delivering us and even if he decides not to for whatever reasons of his own, it still won't change our our decision. And so these guys, uh, it's a great, I think it's a great approach to the Lord. They say, They believe in all sincerity that God is fully capable. But they are not telling God what he has to do. They're not trying to box God into a theological corner. They're saying, you know what? God is big enough that 
if he wants us to survive this, you're going to watch him make us survive this. And if he doesn't, oh, we'll die. That's fine. And uh, you're going to watch us not cave on our principles. And so the king has them chucked into the furnace. And what happens? They don't burn up, right? And then he says, there's a fourth man standing in there. Nebuchadnezzar says, he looks like the son of the gods. And he tells them to come out. And they come out. And they don't even smell like smoke. And, I mean, anybody who has ever been around a campfire knows that that doesn't happen, right? If you do anything around smoke, you smell like smoke. And these guys come out, and it says they didn't even smell like smoke. And so Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, basically nobody can speak anything offensive against your God. So he, he kind of learned his lesson, sort of, kind of. He learns that their God is powerful. He does not learn that their God is the only God. And so chapter 4, we get sort of the finale of Nebuchadnezzar's story. And I love it because it's actually written in first person by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar wrote part of the scripture. We have it and it's Daniel chapter 4. And I love it that one of the most powerful, richest men in all of human history wrote part of the Bible to tell us that arrogance is dumb. And so he basically tells us about another dream he had and Daniel explains it to him and says, God is going to judge you for your arrogance. And Nebuchadnezzar blows it off for a year. And at the end of a year, the Lord judges Nebuchadnezzar for his arrogance. And he, uh, he loses his mind. And Nebuchadnezzar goes completely insane. He thinks he's an animal. The scripture says for seven seasons. We're not exactly sure how long that is. But he lives like in the palace garden. It says his hair grew out like feathers and his fingernails grew out like bird claws. And he ate grass until he learned that the Lord is the one who's in control. And then the Lord, until when he was able to comprehend that fact, the Lord gave him all of his other processing abilities back. And Nebuchadnezzar is restored to his throne. And chapter 4, verse 37, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. I sincerely believe that Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven right now. Because Nebuchadnezzar learned, God is great and I am not. And he gets, he's writing us his testimony to say, arrogance gets you nowhere. Even if it's justifiable arrogance. Even if you are the richest, most powerful man in the world. It still gets you nowhere because you are still nothing compared to the glory of God. And so he's writing this for us. Chapter 5 gives us the flip side of a guy who gets really the same warning and says, no thanks. So we're told the story of Belshazzar. Belshazzar is having a party um, and says, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's get all the gold drinking vessels that we stole from the temple however many years ago, and let's get drunk out of those things. You're right. Instead of worshiping God, we'll just get drunk. And so they're having this, you know, booze fest, and all of a sudden, a hand appears out of nowhere and starts etching in the stone with its finger, which is kind of terrifying. Uh, Belshazzar it says, his face grew pale, his thoughts alarmed him, his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together, which would literally translate, he wet his pants. Um, and so, Belshazzar sees this terrifying thing, says, we've got to find somebody. At this point, he is, he's been blowing Daniel off because he doesn't want to hear somebody tell him about a God in heaven. But somebody says, Daniel can tell you what that thing means. And Daniel comes in and says, I'll tell you what that means. It means that God has weighed you in the balances and you're lacking, and tonight your life's going to be asked of you. And what are you going to do about it? And Belshazzar says, okay, thanks. 
Uh, thanks for telling me what it said. Now, if you leave, we'll get back to the party. And that night, the kingdom's conquered, and Belshazzar is killed. But Belshazzar was weighed in the balances, and every one of us is going to be weighed in the balances. And that's, and, but, you know, picture it like a set of scales, right? In the eyes of God, how do the balances work? Jesus Christ is on one side. So when you say, if whenever somebody says, I hope my good outweighs my bad, what they really kind of mean is, I hope Hitler's on one side and I'm on the other side and, and my good will, you know, tip it in my favor. And that's not how it works. Jesus Christ is on one side and you're on the other side. And so if, if the scales don't tip in your favor, unless you are as holy as Jesus Christ, uh, you're judged. You're going to hell. And the only way we attain that holiness is, is what? Is to invite the righteousness of Christ into our lives. And in a sense, it's like he says, come step on my side of the scales and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover for you. And you're on my side. And, you're on your side, and all of a sudden, that side goes, because that's where all the weight's at. Right? The weight of glory is right on that side and God says, yeah, you're totally in. Welcome to the party. Right? Because it's the righteousness of Christ. If we're weighting the balances on our own actions, it's worthless. We are all condemned. But if we are brought into the kingdom of Christ, if the righteousness of Christ covers us, then we are established and, and, the, and we can fully enter into the presence of God because of the righteousness of Christ. Belshazzar just says, thanks, no thanks. And he dies. And we're given, and it's, it's his choice. It was his call. We're given that, I think, contrast to say, you know what? Both those guys were in the same position. They were both in power. They were both arrogant. They both had a chance to humble themselves, and one of them did. And for every one of us, you know, the Bible gives us this very often. Two thieves on a cross. One accepted, one didn't. Right? We see this throughout the scriptures. We're given the option. You know, people in the same situation can make the totally different choice. What's your choice going to be? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about allowing the righteousness of Christ, receiving the imitation of God in your heart? And so that takes us through chapter 5. Chapter 6, for the sake of time, we just got to sort of blow through it. It's the story of Daniel and the lions then. Daniel is, at this point, this is 70 years later. Daniel's been serving the Lord faithfully. As an 85-year-old guy, uh, the new king comes to the throne, having conquered... Babylon and says uh, basically alright you know he's kind of in place I'm going to put Daniel in charge over here because you know he's good he's stable and um, and so that's great and then Daniel's it's whatever you want to call it corporate jealousy right all of Daniel's co-workers get mad so they decide let's, let's find some sort of conspiracy and they can't which says something interesting about Daniel's character, right? I mean, just think about, you know, politically. I don't really care who you like or don't like as a president. But when liberals wanted to come up with a conspiracy against Donald Trump, they were able to come up with something that at least was convincing in their own mind, right? When conservatives want to come up with some sort of conspiracy against Joe Biden, you're, they're able to, right? Like, there's, there's enough. Everybody in our political world has enough dirt on them that if you want to come up with a conspiracy... You can come up with a conspiracy. Daniel's, uh, everybody who's jealous of Daniel says, we got to come up with something. And they come up dry. And they say, okay, that doesn't work, so let's try something totally different. So they go to the king and say, let's make a temporary rule that nobody can pray to you for 30 days. Just like, let's just celebrate your awesomeness, right? For 30 days, nobody asks anything of any God or any power except for you. Because you are just like 
so smart. You're so with it. You're so put together. The king says, you know what? You're right. I think this is a brilliant idea because I'm brilliant. So let's make this rule. For 30 days, nobody can pray to any god except for me. They sign it. And Daniel says, he doesn't say anything actually. He just goes to his room and prays. Because in Solomon's prayer, in the dedication of the temple, in first, second Chronicles, I think, um, he says, when this people gets carried away captive, if they turn and face Jerusalem and they're facing the temple and they're reminding themselves of where your presence was and they ask you to forgive them and bring them back, then please hear their prayer. And so Daniel is living according to the word of God. He's letting the word of God drive his response, drive his actions. And it doesn't matter if the, what the government says at that point in time. Right? I mean, we're told throughout scriptures, wherever we can, we should be model citizens. Christians should be the hardest workers at their jobs. We should be the most faithful taxpayers. We should be, you know, the most willing to stop at red lights and stop at stop signs and wear our seatbelts and all those other good things that are sometimes annoying. Up until the point that the government asks us to do something, contrary to the word of God. At that point, we say, with respect, I'm sorry, but no. This is not an option. I, I am not, a, I am a citizen of, a, of the United States, but that is my secondary citizenship. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So first and foremost, above everything else, I serve the king of heaven. And that's what Daniel does. And, and that is the one thing that his enemies can pin on him. That ought to be the primary thing that people can pin on us. If people are going to attack you for something, it ought to be for the fact that you are faithful to the word of God. It shouldn't be for the fact that you are really anything else. It shouldn't be for the fact that you're you know, pro-whatever or, or anti-whatever. It should be for the fact that you live according to the word of God. That should be what defines your life. And so, it defined Daniel's life. And so Daniel's enemies say, they have this whole plot. If we make this, you know, if we make this scheme, uh, then you know what, he's not, Daniel's not going to break this. Daniel's going to stay true to the word of, of the Lord. So they make it. They trap him in it, or try it, whatever you want to call it. It's not really a trap, because yeah, Daniel knows what's going to happen. They go to the king and say, okay, hey, you made this law the law, you're under the law, you got to stick it out. So throw Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, you know, that, that's their form of capital punishment. And the king tries to work his way around it. And the guys keep coming back and saying, hey, remember, uh, you made the law. And so, sorry, you got you to gotta stick with the law. And the king's like, and so the king's stuck. His hands are tied. So he, he throws Daniel in the lion's den. He says, Daniel, your God's going to be able to deliver you. And Daniel says, yeah, I know. It's cool. No hard feelings. Daniel, either I don't know how it was built. He either walks in or drops down or whatever he does and says, yeah, I'm good with whatever. And so the king has a pretty restless night. He wakes up the next morning, goes down and says, hey, Daniel, was your God able to deliver you? And Daniel says, yeah, he was. I mean, how many, and, and just think about what that would have felt like. How many times had the king bothered going down to see if the lions had finished their job? How many times had anybody heard a response or thought they'd heard a response? I mean, it doesn't happen, right? But Daniel is a man of principle. He's a man of the word of God. And so what happens? He gets to watch the power of God manifest itself in his life. And uh, 
And so he's delivered from the lion's den. And in case we are suspicious that maybe the lions were slow or off-duty or whatever else, the text then tells us, so the king has all the conspirators against Daniel brought and thrown in the lion's den, and they're eaten before they hit the ground. So just in case we thought, like, Daniel was, you know, just this fluke chance, or just, you know, whatever, it makes sure to tell us, no, 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 this was the protection of the Lord. So um, I know I said, like, ten minutes ago that we were just going to go over chapter six really fast. But I looked at the clock and I decided that I don't think there's um, I don't think there's any way that we're going to cover the last six chapters of Daniel in two and a half minutes. Um, so we're going to stop right there at chapter six. All right, we're going to cut Daniel into two weeks. Um, but bear in mind what we're what we're looking at is we're looking at a, a man and his friends who are living according to the Word of God, living with an expectation that the Word of God is sufficient and that it is relevant and that the Lord is real. These guys are living in a culture that's trying to indoctrinate them. They are living with a sense of, you know what? God is, gonna, God is fully capable and He can do whatever He wants. We're not, you know, we're not making Him do His thing. We're letting God be God. But because God is God, we stand on that. Because God is God, we stand on His Word. We trust in His abilities. We trust in His power. We trust that if He calls us to obey, He's going to work things out. And we don't have to know what that looks like, but we know that He's going to work things out. And so, Daniel in that sense is just, I think, one of the most encouraging passages of Scripture because we get to watch the relevance of a walk with the Lord in a crazy culture that is trying to steal our hearts from God, right? So next week, Daniel chapter 7 through 12. If you want to read it ahead of time, uh, you don't get any kind of bonus points, but you'll at least be a little better prepared because there is some like obscure sounding stuff. So if you read it, you'll at least feel a little more like, okay, I've heard this before. Um, but let's pray. Lord, we thank you that, uh, that you're still speaking to us the example of Daniel and, and we thank you that that you are still reigning supreme you reign above it all God we pray that as we're in a culture that's so much like Daniel's that you would help us to to stand firm to resolve to purpose in our hearts that we will not be defiled by the world God we thank you that we can claim the righteousness of Christ in our hearts and in our lives that we can stand fully in your presence because of the work that Jesus did for us. We pray that we would walk in that, that we would uh, be sheltered under that banner. And so I pray that you would have your way with us, God. Go before us, guide us, and lead us. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.